How's everybody doing? Let's uh, do this as painlessly as possible. Hey, man, how are you? Good seeing you. Do I need a mic? Uh, I'm, can everybody hear in the back? I'll just project a little bit. Where are we going? How are we starting? Obviously, that's not the whole thing. It's uh, much longer than that. You know, you talk about in there, you're talking about you're not a stand-up comedian, but honestly, you're a lot funnier than most of them are. Mm-hmm. Do, you, how, do you feel comfortable just getting out there and just shooting the shit, basically? Um, wait, what did you say I was funnier than most yeah, comedians? I mean, yeah, and I agreed. No, no, no. I don't agree with that. No, no, no. Um, no, those cats are... Comedians are... People that work at their craft and, and uh, basically kind of get up there and generate without the help of the audience. I mean, gra- granted, the audience needs to be there to provide laughter, I guess. But my shtick is just I, I don't I just tell stories. I, without the audience, I get up there and have nothing to talk about. So I never really considered it uh, stand-up comedy. And I still like whenever I watch comedians do it, I'm like, wow, it's impressive. That's amazing and stuff. This is just I you know I like obviously I like talking. So uh, this is just a heightened degree of that where people are like, hey, uh, we'd like to know what happened here or tell us about this. And, you know, it's people asking about your life. They're not asking me the tough questions. Like, hey, if a train leaves Red Bank going 100 miles per hour, you know, this time, and a train leaves Los Angeles, they're asking me shit that I can answer pretty damn easily. And, and generally speaking, there's an anecdote for most of the stuff they're talking about. So uh, it, it, I don't know. For me, it's comfy. I like it. I like chatting. And the last... Uh, I guess the last two years or three years, more I've been chatting more uh, regularly than, than I had even before. Um, now it's kind of building all towards chat, I guess, as the movie career winds down. When you when you started out your career, Kevin... Hey, Peter, um, how are you? I saw your name on the door out there the other day. I was like, it's fucking Peter. I know him. Uh, when you started out your career, you, you, the, the world was in a place where you needed to get a major corporation to buy your movie, to make you a, a film director. But now you're speaking directly to your fans on Twitter. You have built the Smod Castle. And, I um, didn't. Matt Cohen built the Smod Castle. I just well, had the idea. And the if, idea, it, if yeah. it weren't for Matt, it would have just stayed an idea. Like, that's merciful. I've been an idea man my whole fucking life. Mercifully, I hook up with people that actually can kind of take it the next step and whatnot. So Matt was definitely that guy. I mean, I come in and people are like, you built the castle. And I'm like, not really. I just put the shit on the wall. I didn't even hang that. I was like, can you hang this on the wall? But, but, but you built, or, well, you it's had the idea built. to Let's build just the castle. Say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you had the idea to build an, a podcast network, and, and now you're well, that building came a, from you know, That came from Twitter, too. Just like when we had... When we started with Smodcast, we did that for like two years of just putting up Smodcasts. And then, uh, you know, the boys, Brian and Walter, would come on the show periodically and whatnot. But I've been telling them for years, like, you guys should just do a show. People, like, think you're funny. Like, you don't even need me. And, and Walter's just such a fucking pessimist. He was just like, no, people just like this because of you, blah, blah, blah. So he wouldn't do it. He dragged heels and shit. It wasn't until uh, Johnson, Brian, was looking really fucking suicidal and shit. And then Walter's like, look, I'll try anything and get him off his ass because he's in a real bad way. So they started doing that show, Tell Him Steve, Dave. And suddenly when we had two shows, people on Twitter started being like, why won't you do another show? How about another one? And so I was like, all right, yeah, let's get another show going. By the time we got to three shows, people started being like, oh, man, can you do a week? And then it became like this dream of like, yeah, I would like to do a week of shows. I don't have to be in every one, but I think I can make it happen. And slowly, bit by bit, we were able to kind of pull together. And that's been like the most gratifying aspect, I think, of, of, of last year. It was just kind of watching that thing go from one podcast to two to three, four, now up to seven. And after Red State, we have two 
two or three more shows that we're going to start, including the one with Katie Morgan, who goes regularly every week. And, and then there's, um, well, the boys just started the Puck Nuts, the hockey show. And then there's two other shows we're talking about doing. So now we're going to have to start doubling up during the, the week. So some weeks, some days there'll be more than one show. And I dig it, man. It's free. It's fucking... Nobody can harass you. Nobody can sit there and be like, your shit sucks. It's like, don't matter. It's free, dude. It costs you nothing. You don't have to listen to it. Um, there's more often than that people dig it. The fact that it's free also fucking helps because nobody comes out of it going like, I paid for this. This sucks. If it's free, you don't really get that. It helps that the shit is genuinely funny. I used to get real... Uh, kind of leery about saying that because it sounds very braggy, but I, those podcasts are fucking funny. I don't care if you like me or not. Like, there's some, it's not even just me. It's like the people I'm talking to are genuinely funny fucking people. So the fact that it's funny and free just like fucking paved the way, man. Like, for people to dig it. If people are digging it, they're telling you and it's just fueling you. You know, work breeds work and fucking people being like, I think that's funny, man. Do another one. Makes you want to do another one. And soon we just kept doing it and doing it. We were able to kind of go, seven days and now it's kind of like where does one take it from there but we just keep looking back to the past to kind of figure out the future and it just kind of feels like the early days of tv where you could just try shit like let's just try this let's just put it on there and see what happens and you know we've done shows like highlands was a show that we thought would be stronger than it was and then we realized it's not a great live show it's more of a it's an intimate show it needs to be done in a room and shit like that so, like, that went away and made room for something else. You know, Katie's show was supposed to be going regularly when we opened, and then Katie had a, a family tragedy and kind of had to step away for a couple months. And just to fill the hole, I was like, Muse, you want to step in and do a fucking podcast for a couple weeks? He was like, okay, and that's Jay and Silent Bob get old, and that's become one of the most popular ones on the on our little network and right here in the theater. So it's been a, it's a cool year of just talking, and, and talk has bred a lot of neat things, including a room for us to all sit in. And then, like, after we're done talking, Hollywood Babylon with Ralph Garman starts, and we do that show, and then I get to go home, and something really nice. I mean, for years, look, I'm a filmmaker, and, and I can't dodge that, and I'll be forever identified as a filmmaker because that's kind of what I hit the world as first. But I, for years, a lot of people have been like, he ain't no filmmaker, and, you know, they're fucking right. I'm not first and foremost a filmmaker. Filmmaking is just how I get introduced. Clearly, I just want to entertain. So that covers a lot more ground than just filmmaking. So for a filmmaker, this shit is crack. To come down here like once or twice a weekend, get up on stage in front of a manageable crowd, in terms of manageable meaning like, oh shit, how am I going to sell 500 seats over a weekend? You know what I'm saying? 50 seats, we could pretty much sell pretty easily. Nice sampling of a crowd. Go up, do a show, be funny in front of people, keeps you fucking sharp, 10,000 hours theory, all that work, all that leads somewhere. You know, it's like keep doing it over and over again. You just kind of become good at it. Or not maybe good, but more natural at it, I guess, is, is what it is. So, I don't know. Right now, it's, it's kind of an exciting time where I make more money talking than I do directing at this point. Um, but, but, I mean, like, sooner or later, you, you'll be able to make a movie without going to the studio. Oh, wait, you, you're doing that. Yeah. that. That was what my real question was about. Like, can you talk a little bit about Were you burying that? a red state question in there? And just let well, me yeah. talk about Spotify. No, I, I, I think, I think it's you, interesting that, that you're, you're basically cut out the middleman you're going direct to the your your fans and your yeah you know what it just everything came to a head at the right time and it's certainly not about like oh fuck the media obviously i like the media i'm a media whore i've loved that that kind of thing but i'm older now i'm 40 
And I don't need people who are strangers telling me nice things about me anymore, as much as I did in the past, um, to validate me. I know what I'm doing now. I've kind of found my path. I'm on better or for worse. I kind of do it, and I dig it. So it leaves me in an interesting position with, with uh, quote-unquote, middleman, if you will, which is not just media. It's a lot of things. It's studio, media, anybody that I needed to go through to reach the audience. By virtue of the fact that the last few years... I've been out there with the audience all the time. You, you suddenly have the audience at your disposal without having to go through somebody else. And it happened all in the, in, after the Southwest thing, which really fucking turned me off to the whole fucking world, to the press, to people, to the job, everything. It was just so disheartening and so fucking sickening. One or two choices in that moment, just fucking lay down and die or figure out something else to do. So in that moment, I, I was just like, okay, you're alone. Ultimately, like, I really thought I had partners out there and shit, like, you know, just like, hey, we're all in this together and blah, blah, blah. No. Ultimately, I was a a fat guy alone on a plane and shit like that. So I was just like, okay, if that's the case, I have to learn to be self-sufficient. I never want to be in that place anymore where I'm just like, hey, man, did you hear what happened on a plane? Fucking story about, like, uh, some corporation fucking a dude over? And they're like, yeah, but it was a fat dude who didn't fit in a chair, so that's funny. And I missed it as the comic. I didn't even comedian or the guy who likes comedy, rather. I didn't even see that angle. I thought, like, the story would be, like, they got caught fucking smacking somebody down. Like, the airline treated somebody like shit who got to be able to say something about it. But in the process, I guess the story was more about, like, wait, 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 you were too fat to fit on the chair and shit or something like that, which wasn't even true, and it didn't fucking matter. That's the thing. For a week, I just watched people write whatever they fucking wanted. None of it true. And I put up the true story in a couple different ways, and people didn't want to touch that. So at that point, I was like, you can't count on anybody anymore except yourself self-sufficiency and i started reading all the people on twitter twitter who'd like listen to the podcast or listen to my side of the story or whatever the fuck and i was like i guess that's all i really care about is the people that i talk to on a regular basis so at that point i just kind of cut ties in a in a weird way you know certainly not in the way of like fuck everybody i'm at war with the world but i'm just like i've now seen everybody's true colors and i'm just not that impressed like so i'd just rather carry everything on my own fucking back, including the audience, including finding the money for it. Don't want to go hat in hand anymore to, to kind of anybody. And it's a fun time because of that. It's kind of exciting. It's weird. The moment you fucking realize how little you need, it, it, it lightens the load in this incredible way. It removes desperation from every relationship. Like, for example, I can sit here and chit-chat, and this is fun and whatnot, but if you all write shitty things, or if you don't write a thing at all, it doesn't matter. Like, I had the good time. My moment is here, just sitting there chit-chatting, because obviously I like talking. Got to find something in it for you, because it always gets perverted and turned into something else down the road. And for me, it's these few minutes, however much time we spend together, getting to express myself, hearing what you guys are curious about. And then when you go off, I don't think about it anymore. Back in the day, I used to be like, all right, what did they write? And follow the stories and shit like that, Google News Alerts, out the ass. Now I never want to see my name in print anymore ever again. I, you know, it sounds weird because I'm standing here talking to press, but I feel bad. You know, it was like the Epics put a fucking really sweet special together. Like Epics let me be George Carlin for a weekend, man. Like I got a little TV special and it's kind of in my world too because there's a web component to it as well. So it's not just like old media, it's fucking new media, but there's sentimentality for old media because that's what I, you know, grew up watching and whatnot. So I get to kind of, say that little kind of dream but at the same time it's more about what i like to do which is like this shit will be available online moments later or if not at the same time so it's kind of more about instant gratification and i guess you know epics was like hey man we gotta alert people about the thing i mean you gotta do press contractually of course i'm supposed to do press 
But I'm like, we could do all the press you want. Same amount of fucking people are going to watch it. Doesn't matter because I reach the same amount of people that they reach. You know, in fact, I probably reach a little more. So I hit everybody who gives a fuck about Kevin Smith and anybody else that if anybody writes about it, you're not really hitting anybody that really gives a fuck about me or what I do here because they're not inclined to. To like it anyway, or not, or even look it up in the first place. So it's weird. After you spend like kind of 20 years doing it, you really start to see the strings and you start to figure out, uh, what's important, what's not important. And, you know, it's certainly not saying like, hey, what you do is unimportant for me, for what you, for you guys and everybody that reads it, very important. But for me, it's not where it's at anymore. Now I'm more about like, what did that dude think? The person that paid to see it and shit. And I got in trouble online, made some comments about the critical community a couple months ago, and people got very up in arms, naturally critics. Nobody wants to hear the, that, that the fucking I don't give a shit about their job anymore or something like that. But it's just like an honest position. You know, it's not like a hostile or offensive position, but I don't understand why for years and years they could feel free to say anything they want about my work. And then the moment it was like, I don't really care about your stuff anymore. It's like, how dare he? What the fuck? How could he not trust a critic? He's saying we're all wrong. You know, it's like they went fucking high drama with it. So... That was weird. The moment I criticize a critic, I've also figured out a few things as well. But uh, for me, I, I don't know. It all came at the right time. Thank God for Twitter. Thank God for the podcast. Thank God for the last few years. Because Red State and kind of going back, and I, I don't want to say going back to the roots because it's not to the roots at all, but going back to a world where I'm not um, answering to anybody and as much as like somebody going, hey, man, you might want to cast this person in your movie because they'll get you nice Leno hit or Letterman hit somewhere down the road when the movie comes out. Going into Red State, it was a beautiful conversation I had with John Gordon, the producer, where I was like, all right, let's talk about casting beyond the people I knew I wanted. And he's going, what do you mean, beyond the people you know you want? And I was like, well, there's the ones I want, and then the ones we'll have to give. And he's like, dude, we're not in that world anymore, dude. You don't have to cast anybody you don't want. And I was like, you're kidding. He was like, yeah, just in this world, four million bucks, that's what the budget of Red State is. Go nuts. Like, like if you could cast this movie with anyone you want, who would it be? That's kind of what we did. And it's weird. It's like this weird little actor movie. But the only reason we could do that is because I have the safe, uh, the secure knowledge that good or bad, rise or fall, whether the movie's fucking a work of art or a piece of dog shit, about 8 to $12 million worth of people are going to come to see it, whether I spend a dime in marketing or not. So I'm kind of like, all right, this is a great time to try a bunch of shit, particularly because the budget's so fucking low. Um, but I'm not quite there yet. I'm working on, I'm working on something, man. And I think by if we wind up going to Sundance, I think I'll have it down pat. But by January, I think I'm ready to try something even more exciting than just making an independent film. We'll see. But uh, I don't know. It, it all came, as you can see here in the special, came from smoking weed a lot too. <laughs> a lot of weed. Now, now all of a sudden, it's just like, all right, let's try it. You know, back in the day, I would just be like, maybe we could do this, and then be like, nah, man, it won't work. And when you're stoned, you're like, anything will work. You know, so now it opens up a lot of possibility, and, it, and it's been kind of fun and gratifying. I was going to say that, that. Are you going to start releasing your own films then? Because if you if you can know, that would be the trick. Back. I remember a long time ago being at a a panel at South by Southwest, and it was like a fucking cool panel. I didn't even belong on it. It was Quentin, uh, Mike Judge, Robert Rodriguez, Steven Soderbergh. And George Wang. And me and George Wang were kind of like the, what are they doing up there? Um, although George Wang seemed like he believed he deserved to be up there. I think I was the only one that was like, holy shit, this rocks. So on the panel, Quentin kept um, urging the audience. People were talking about it. It was 97. I was there with Chasing Amy. 
Um, and I think he was there with like post Jackie Brown or something like that. And he was urging the audience, all emerging filmmakers, all people that want to do what we were doing, to not pursue that at all and pursue distribution. I mean, he's just like, that's the problem. He's going, there's so many filmmakers, no distributors, no exhibitors. He's like, that's the next generation needs to be that, that. And at the time, I remember thinking, like, who the fuck would want to be that? Like, and especially, like, I remember in 94, like, uh, going to a, a panel, James, Edward James Almos was the, uh, at the IFP talking about a movie he'd made, I think with Robert Young or something like that. It wasn't American Me, but one of those movies that he made around that era. And uh, I was at the IFP with Clerks. We were trying to sell Clerks. And he was, uh, we were sitting there, and he kept talking about the importance of owning the negative. And he was like, he was almost like Khrushchev slamming the table with his foot, like, oh, we will destroy it. He was just like, own your negative. It's so important. I can't stress it enough. Own the negative. And I remember sitting in the audience being like, dude, I just want to sell this fucking movie. Like, I don't want to own this. Like, I made it, and I want to sell it. Because that's what we were used to. That's the old model of, like, you make it, sell it to somebody else. They pour a bunch of money all over it, push it out into the marketplace and see what happens. And that model's fucking broke. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's sickening when I think about everyone on, on fucking Red State pulling belts, cinching belts. It's an ambitious movie. Visually speaking, the most ambitious flick we've ever made. And we're doing it for a song. And it makes me sad to look around at all the people on the crew, myself included, who all took massive, massive pay cuts, and some of us just ain't getting paid, period, just doing it for the love, working to pull it all in for that fucking budget, then we're just supposed to sell it and watch some other jackass put $20 million into to opening it. So $20 million that we could have used to make the movie is just going to be used to fucking throw at newspapers and TV, dead media that fucking nobody's watching. <laughs> I can hit more people than those fuckers. And they're taking money, dude. I can't tell you. Clerks 2 cost five million bucks. And I remember I was like, please, Harvey, spend no more than five million opening this movie. He's like, why? That's ridiculous. <laughs> I was like, that's all. We, we're covered. Everybody who wants to see Clerks 2 knows that it's being made and they're going to go. Don't make spots for another audience trying. There's always this mythical, like, yeah, but we can go beyond the Kevin Smith audience. There is no beyond the Kevin Smith audience. That's it. It has a ceiling and everybody has to learn to deal with it. But he didn't. He believed, like, there's more, there's more. And they spent like $10 million marketing that movie, which made me heart sick. I'm like, we made it for five. You're going to spend 10 to sell it. So that means now we're not trying to recoup 5 million bucks. We're trying to recoup 15 million bucks. Why did we make the movie so fucking low budget? So I don't know. That's the next three months before Sundance happens because uh, that'll be the place where we debut the film and whatever its future winds up being will probably be determined up there. So before I get up there, I want to have a plan in hand about just changing the future a little bit, man. Because the first time I went up to Sundance, it was no plan, but like we wound up being part of a generation that was something new. And then it it sold out, you know? It got co-opted like everything else and kind of became part of the studio system. And soon it was indiscernible. Indie film was indiscernible from studios. And thank God for the mumblecore kids who really kept the hope alive for the last few years. But the reason that the whole model is broken and it doesn't work, why an indie filmmaker can't do what I did in 94, make a flick and hope to see it release and shit, it's too fucking expensive. That's the thing nobody wants to talk about. It is too fucking expensive to make movies. That's not true. Strike that. It is too fucking expensive to market movies. Making movies is about as, uh, you can, shit, 10 bucks to 10 million. Doesn't matter. If you've got a crew, imagination, and a lot of people willing to turn in some work for next to nothing, you're going to have a feature. 
It's selling a movie. That's it's intractable. You can't fucking get beyond how expensive it is. It's soul crushing. If I was an indie filmmaker starting out today, I'd be like, "Why? What's the point? We're gonna make it, and how the fuck are we gonna get an ad on television and shit?" But they shouldn't worry about that because TV ads are fucking dropping in price too. And now you can win TV commercial time space like online, like an eBay like auctions, which is a clear bellwether that money's falling away from there too. Like not a lot of people are sitting around watching that. So I, I don't know. It's just I can't. Makes me sick thinking like somebody's gonna buy the movie and I'm gonna see a bunch of TV spots all over fucking television for this flick that I'm like, why are you bothering? Let's just go after my audience. That's it. For a four million dollar budget, eight to twelve million people show up first weekend. Congratulations, you fucking won. You know you're gonna live forever and make a million dollars. Like just be happy and fucking move on. People in this town get so fucking greedy. It's gotta be more and more and more bullshit, man. I'm working. In my box from now on. All those years, people online were like, "He just plays to his audience." Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every filmmaker, everybody plays to their audience. I don't think the Rolling Stone plays to Bob Dylan's audience. They play to the Rolling Stones' audience. I'm just playing to my audience, and I just figured out how to kind of give the audience what they want from me. It's mutually beneficial. They can have everything. I'll give them everything. I'll tell them every fucking detail about my life. Introduce them all my friends. Give them hundreds and hundreds of hours of fucking free. I just want to make sure they give one thing to me for the rest of my life. I like dressing like this. I don't ever want a job where I have to put on clothes that don't look this stupid. So, if I just keep giving them entertainment and shit like that, I can live as an eternal teenager until I die. And let's be honest, that'll probably be in about less than ten years at this point. So, if I could just make it that long, epic, epic fucking win for me. So, once I figured that out, then I was just like, I don't need the intermediary anymore. It doesn't doesn't matter. You know, it's 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 like carrying your own village to some degree. And as long as you keep generating more onto that village, like years ago, it was just easy to be dismissive and be like, "Oh, it's Kevin Smith audience. He's got a little audience and shit." And then Twitter was able to put a number on it, and people were like, "Oh, I guess it's not so fucking little." Blah blah blah. <laughs> so you know, it's kind of nice to get a little satisfaction there. But I'm not in it for the satisfaction of having somebody be like, "Wow, you got a lot of followers." Now I'm in it for the satisfaction of like. And they all love me, and I fucking love them, and we live off one another. You know, I give them whatever it is that they can't do or say or think or feel for themselves, or find a way to express it that in a way that they couldn't for themselves previously. And in exchange, they let me do this. You know, I sit around on a fucking Saturday night in the little theater I own, sit around, talk to my fucking friends, sell tickets to it like the little fucking rascals. That's that's win, big big win for me. I have a question. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Uh, Do you want to go? Or? I, I don't mind. <laughs> I, I, so, yeah. I, um, and I'm getting this secondhand from a friend, so if I'm wrong, just tell me. Okay. Um, but, but if I tell you you're wrong, will it matter? You're going to write whatever you want to write. No. Good man. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to pay for this. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but um, my friend said, said that, that you had said something about how you were sort of disappointed with the sort of lack of media coverage or, or blogger coverage or whatever. What you did here with Smog Castle and the podcast and everything. Yeah, in the beginning I was. And when we opened up, I thought it was really fucking sickening that the LA Times and the LA Weekly didn't come down. Didn't fuck. I mean, come on, dude. I'm not saying I'm fucking Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg, but in terms of directors, I have a pretty well known name. And when a pretty well known name director opens up a dopey, the world's first podcasting theater in the heart of Los Angeles, the LA Times and the LA Weekly can't get off their fucking asses and write about it. And that's when I was just like, ugh. Why do I care? Why do I care? Once again, 
old, you know, I, I was raised in a world of old media where seeing your name in a newspaper meant something or hearing your name on TV meant something. That doesn't matter anymore. You know, we're in the fucking, the Warholian 15 minutes age where everybody gets to see their name in print sooner or later. So that kind of aspect of it doesn't really do it for me anymore. The notion of like, ooh, they're going to put my name in the fucking newspaper or something like that. I lost track. What was your question? Oh, no. I, I, it, was, it was just interesting. <laughs> like, like, no, no. What did you ask? What did you ask? Oh, the, if you were disappointed. Okay, disappointed. People, yeah. So when that happened, when we opened the theater, I was kind of like, uh, and in fact, we brought on a publicist, Amy Fister. I got, I'm publicist free for the last few months. Um, but I still didn't want to commit to getting a publicist for me because I'm working on something. But I was like, hey, well, we're opening a business here. We got a little cast. Let's see if we can get the word out brought on Amy Fister to try to do it. Um, and I told her when I brought her on, I was like, this is it. You're at the end of a dead romance between me and media. I don't care anymore. So if you can kind of make them see that what we have here is cool, great. But if you don't, we'll try for a few months after that. We'll just fucking move on because I don't need to. It's like I could put asses in seats without a, a goddamn newspaper. And the moment we gave up, the moment we were like, fuck those people. The fucking theater dude from the L.A. Times, I guess, walked past the theater. was like, what is this all about? So they wound up doing a piece, but it was the theater guy. It wasn't fucking the film section. You know what I'm saying? Like, Patrick Goldstein and all those people will be more than happy to write negative shit in a heartbeat, particularly if you give it to them, man, because everyone wants to live in a Nicky Fink world, man. But I, I just don't have that much bile to give and shit like that. I, I, for me, that kind of shit's just completely disinteresting and, and so I, I don't know it, I used to get worried about we have a show here the Babylon show where we literally sit around and talk about fucking Hollywood and just shoot fish in a barrel but it, it's existing in a fucking vacuum I used to worry that like oh shit the gossip columns are going to find it no because that would require gossip columns get off her fat fucking ass stop petting a cat and go somewhere <laughs> and fucking engage with humanity rather than hearing through a network of fucking spies and shit like that once you figure out the game man it's just so sickening you see it all and you're just like ugh it's so ridiculous it's fucking high school it's high school all over again and once you get that it's you kind of play it like high school and then it's not so bad did I answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> I was just wondering, how is the, the Red State shoot going? It's like, phenomenal. What, but what somebody pointed out on it? Twitter that I said that about the cop-out shoot as well. <laughs> but I was always very very careful about the cop-out shoot to tweet about the things that were very positive about it. And it wasn't everything. It was just some parts of it. This movie, though, everything about it has been positive. It is fucking amazing to sit there and make a movie for four million bucks, man. Particularly this movie. Because... We got something that's a little different than what we normally do. And, and uh, this is kind of me. When I started, I, I didn't start trying to make comedy. I, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And Clerks, to me, was a film. happened to be a comedy. And then slowly, I just kind of went in the direction of comedy, comedy, comedy. Because that's I like doing it. It's fun for me, blah, blah, blah. This allows me to kind of get back to the point where I wasn't just interested in filmmaking. Because this movie ain't funny at all. I mean, there's some gallows humor and some dark fucking laughs. And... Michael Park's performance is not to be fucking believed. It's so fucking... I'm not even going to say anymore. But it's it's the uh, watching... Putting that movie together on a daily basis where it's not about laughs, where you're doing whole scenes that are like really dramatic and scary and shit like that has been so much fun for me as, as a filmmaker. Somewhere deep inside of all this fat, the filmmaker from back in 93, 94 feels really like satisfied by what we've been doing for the last few weeks out in Whittier with Red State. Um, we get to take some chances, take some risks, and I think people will be surprised. It doesn't, I mean, I've said that about Cop Out. It doesn't look like anything we did before. This movie 
really doesn't look like anything I've done before and doesn't look like anything anyone else has done before. But it looks like every familiar horror movie. It's full of tropes, but at the same time, it's very, very different. It's weird. Have you had to change a lot with the lower budget than... No, oddly enough, no. Not that much. I mean, that was the thing. Uh, you know, you basically, uh, scenes become small. Instead of 30 people, you're dealing with 15 in a crowd or something like that. Um, so you just kind of tighten up. But I'm used to that. I'm so that guy. I'm a... I'm a giver, I'm a total fucking, if I was gay, I'd be a total bottom and shit. But um, I'm the kind of guy that just makes it manageable. I just want to make it manageable for you. So it's just like, you're an actor. Back in the day, you'd come up to me and be like, I don't know how to say this. And I'd be like, say it like this, and I would tell you how to say it. You're an actor. Like, Melissa Leo came up to me on set. She's like, I don't know what my motivation is for saying this line. I was like, don't say it. I wrote it when I was stoned. You know, <laughs> she was just like, well, I'd like to figure out how to do it. I was like, okay, then you can do it. I just go like this now. I'm just like, whatever you want. I just host the movie, you know what I'm saying? And it's so much fun to do, you know, because people, when you're working with talented craftspeople like that, it's not like back in the day, like I used to have to fucking put my hand up people's asses working like a puppet, like Muse particularly, he wasn't an actor. These cats are actors, you hit a set, man, you're just like, here's the pages, they drop science, like clinics on you, and you're just like, holy shit, you're done before you know it. Like my direction lately has come down to as simple as just like, that was great, we're going to go one more time. You know, that's it. There's nothing to say. Because, like, John Goodman was on set yesterday. John Goodman, through years and years and years of amazing fucking work that we've all seen and whatnot, he comes onto a stage and tosses off a page and a half of dialogue that sounds like he's just having a conversation with you. But it's scripted dialogue, and it's the worst kind of scripted dialogue because it's all uh, exposition. But this dude just let it fall out of his mouth so naturally you just sit there awed by like a true craftsperson that comes in Park same way Leo same way even the kids man Kyle Nick and fucking Michael just crushing crushing it it's nice to watch so on this movie like I literally hang back there's not much for me to do I'll go in and kind of push things this way tweak this way maybe nudge this way but generally speaking I sit behind the monitor watch the movie enjoy it and say let's move on let's do another piece that's next is yeah that, that is happening now? yeah 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 I just emailed Mitch Mitch Album coming to town this weekend and it's based on a song that he wrote this movie I want to do next called Hit Somebody's Hockey Movie and um, he was coming down this weekend, and he was just like, where, where are you on the script? And so I got 110 pages, so this weekend I want to let him read it and, and see what he thinks, which is kind of nerve-wracking because he's one of the most best-selling authors of all fucking time. And he's so earnest. Like, Mitch is a really, like, earnest, good guy who in his time down builds, like, housing facilities and showers for people in Haiti and shit. And I'm the guy that's just, like, on stage talking about my dick. So, you know, it's... <laughs> It's, I, I'm a little nervous about handing the script, particularly because it's based on something he wrote, lyrics to a song. Um, and when he sees, like, the 110 pages of the script are only the first verse of the song, I think he'll be kind of surprised, like, that I was able to fill in that much. But it could be the, the other way, where he's just like, this is, what are you talking about? This isn't it at all. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest with you. I hope he digs it. It's so Canadian, the film. I don't know if an American will dig it as much as a Canadian. I'm an American, but I dig it, but that's because I'm a Canada file. But the movie is so much about what it means to be Canadians, but not so much about like just hockey. Naturally, hockey is the world it's set in. But it's it's kind of a tutorial on, on, on the land up north. It's, it's beautiful so far, man. I mean, as written, I can't vouch for what it looks like when we're done shooting it, but as written... It's a really kind of beautiful elegy to youth. I was surprised by that because I thought I was going to make Slapshot. 
but instead I, I went in a different direction with it. Were you listening to Zevon while you were? I, I've always listened to Zevon. I, I mean, look, I'd never say it. And I was always waiting for some journalist to write it one day. But you know, I, I, Warren Zevon, I make Warren Zevon songs as films. You know what I'm saying? Like Warren, what Warren did to music, that's kind of what I like to do in film. He takes, he tells very or told very off kilter, normal stories that were just kind of left of center, and that's kind of what we've tried to do with the movies for years. So it's a pretty. Pretty good match, um, and and the, the kind of humor that's in his work really kind of shines in the script so far. It's very Zivonian, if you will. I have a question. Fire away. Um, going back to what you were talking about earlier, however unfortunate the airplane situation was for you, it seems to me in the way that you're talking that it actually ended up being really beneficial and liberating you in your work. Yeah, totally. But when you survive cancer, that's also a cool thing. But like, it's <laughs> cancer. You know, It's like nobody wants it. I wouldn't want to go through it again. It sucked. It was horrible. Right. There were three days where every day I would get up and just look at my wife and be like, did it leave yet? Because that story was at the top of Google News and that number of articles just kept getting bigger and bigger. Every headline was just like fat filmmaker because since I tweeted about myself being fat and used all the terminology, they were able to take it and stick it into fucking headlines. So headline after headline, I don't care who you are, you keep watching the whole world fucking tell you you're fat in print, it has an effect. It was dark. It was a really dark time where I would just kind of get up, walk around the room and be like, life will never be the same anymore. Like, I have no idea what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I was swinging from my corner trying to kind of disseminate the truth and put the truth out there without being gross about it. Because in our culture, everybody wants you to go on TV and fucking scream about it. Larry, uh, what's his face? Um, I was going to say Larry Flint. Larry, uh, thank you. Larry King, (laughs) the other pornographer. Uh, Larry King um, reached out and was just like, come on the show and talk about it. And that felt gross to me. I'm like, I'm not Octomom, dude. Like, what happened was real. Like, I'm not going to go there and try to build a career off this. I got a career. This is an embarrassing fucking thing that I wish hadn't happened. But it did. And rather than let them get away with it, I fucking called them on it. And it got away from me and became something that blew up in my face and made me feel bad about myself for a little while. Then Tiger Woods came out and talked about cheating on his wife. And everybody forgot how fat I was. (laughs) And it rocked. And I went back to being fat privately and quietly and shit. So for three days... It was like, uh, it was weird. It was like, uh, for three days, everyone said the obvious. Like, you know you're fat, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read about it online a lot. Um, So, uh, I don't know. You go through that, it changes you in some weird way. And it could change you caustically, bitterly, and just make you like, fuck all these people. I just want to scorch the earth. I don't have that. But now I just don't care as much as I used to. Now I'm just like, I get it. Everyone's in it for themselves. Okay, I'm in it for me and mine now. Used to be like, me, mine, and everybody. A collective effort. Let's put on a show. But now it's like, nah, it's okay. We'll close ranks and keep the shitters out because there's lots and lots of them. I met a lot of them in the course of last year. But that Southwest thing, is as horrible as it was, yeah, great things came from that land. Like, by virtue of the fact, I think I talked about in the opening of the show, by virtue of the fact that I didn't want to fly anywhere, I started busing everywhere, and then I bought a bus. I liked it so much. And because I was on the bus by myself, I was like, this is ridiculous. One guy on a bus, what a waste of gas. I was like, we should bring everybody else and do the shows. Like, we could do the podcast on the road. So I asked Bozier, you want to drive around a bus like the Partridge family and do our show and shit? He's like, let's give it a shot. So we went out for a week, and suddenly we created a, a different version of Smodcast. Different when we're in the room together, just us trying to make each other laugh. When you bring a live component into it, being on a stage completely different. Suddenly you're 
trying to make them laugh. And it's less about you guys and more about them. So you wind up doing a version of the show that's completely different than the version you normally do because you're playing to them. And we liked it. It was kind of cool. You know, it was great. I mean, look, I like being on stage, obviously, and shit. And I've been doing it for a while. But Mosier was not. Mosier was so not that guy. You put anybody on a stage in front of 200, 300 people, have them be funny or her be funny, and have the audience fuck. Like I said, my mom played last week up at Smod Castle. She made 50 people fucking laugh with a titty joke. And I just saw her eyes light up like, now I understand, you know, what he's been doing all this time. So Mosier got up, started doing the show live, and turned into this really wonderful live performer and it grew it, it kind of bred another tour we wound up doing another one and that's when then i got the bus and we started touring on the bus and then it, it kind of spawned this because we came back from i think it was the second or third tour maybe the third and um on twitter i was just like i'm so bummed like we had such a good time being out in the world and doing it in front of people and so now we gotta wait until the next tour and then i was like but maybe we could get a black box theater and do it every week and twitter you do something like that on Twitter, it's like being drunk with your friends and shit. We're like, pull your dick out, dude. Go ahead. It's a good idea. You know, they won't tell you. Like, don't do that. You're not thinking right. And on Twitter, same thing. They were just like, you should open Smodcast. That's a good idea. And um, they fed the idea, and, so, and we kind of went forward with it. Once we had the theater, that created more shows for the network. So suddenly the network got bigger. You know, and, that, and Jay and Bob Get Old comes out of it, and suddenly that becomes a live show that we start touring in a couple months. So, you know, ultimately I go, all right, some shit came out of Southwest, but they didn't give it to me. You know, that was some nice shit that happened in spite of some dickhead shit that they did and still continue to do. Get shit all the time from people who are like, I just got treated this way, I got treated that way, but that same fucking airline. Nothing I can do about that. Um, but uh, it, it's, yeah, it, 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 good stuff came from it, but I think that's up to the individual. You know, it's just like somebody throws your curveball, you either get hit by it or fucking duck. Um, and I, I ducked. How long before you start doing um, the stand-up Q and A's? Is like a weekly like online TV show. Or something. I don't know, man. Somebody asked me just today. They're like, "You're gonna run out of shit to talk about?" I was like, "Yeah, pretty soon." <laughs> so uh, I think I could do that because then you know, I, I, I would have no material built up. You know what I'm saying? Like it would literally be like. Um, let's see, what did I do? I drove here a minute ago, you know, like, because I'm so fucking on, on, on empty. It helps to go live a little bit so you have some shit to talk about. I, I have a question. Um, is there any chance, because I know that there's a big rights thing uh, with it, is there any chance at any point of us seeing more Clerks animated? Because I, I was a huge, huge Yeah, fan. I like that a lot, too. Um, right now, well, now it's even weirder, because uh, is, has Miramax been sold yet, or did that stall? Yeah, it's a weird... Yeah. I don't understand. It seemed like it was about to happen, and Rob Lowe was going to own Miramax or something, and then uh, maybe it was a dream <laughs> I had. I don't know. But now I haven't heard anyone selling it. I haven't heard that the transaction went through. So all did it go through? Yeah, it's just, it won't finalize till the end of the year. So now, who owns those movies? Those guys? There'll be a couple new guys who own us. So then I'll have to go to them and be like, hey, can we do the Clerks cartoon? Now, I imagine those cats are going to want to monetize everything as quickly as possible because they got to pay for the fucking huge bills that they just racked up buying the company. So maybe they'll be amenable to it. Maybe they'll be like, yeah, go ahead. What do we give a fuck? Go ahead. Just give us some money or all the money. And at that point, I'm okay with that. I'm actually, I'm not, I've never really been into the bread. Now, I like the money and afford you some nice, cool things, but... Some like if if they called me up, they're like, "We'll do it, but you gotta do it for free." I'd be like, "All right, I like that show. That was funny." What was what's the process like writing that? Because like, it seems like it was very different than your other creative outlet. Very much so. It was, was it more, more like, like a, a podcast room? where you just sit around with other people and talk, and stuff comes from it. 
And I, it was a weird way to work because I'm used to, I write alone, you know, not because I'm like, nobody can write with me. It's just, I don't know any other way to do it. I jerk off and write alone. You know, those are two things that need to be solitary. But um, the, writing the show, working on the Clerks cartoon with a bunch of other writers, including Dave Mandel, was, um, it, it was a learning process for me where it's just like, oh, like it, literally throwing a joke out and having people be like, eh. And you're like, but I invented clerks. You know, you just, <laughs> <laughs> but you realize best joke's going to win. It's good training, you know, for kind of getting up there and, and keeping crisp. Have you ever thought about doing any of your other movies in animated form, like Mallrats or um, any of those characters? No. I mean, honestly, I love the Viewsk universe, and, and, and it's been very good to me for years and years and years. But, you know, if you live next door to Disney World, sooner or later you just kind of stop going. Like, I, I've, I've played in the Viewsk universe for so long now. Right now that's the last thing on my mind. So if somebody was like, hey, you want to do a Mallrats cartoon? I'd be like, I'd like to see it. You know, I don't know if I want to work on it. That's why I like the Stark tunes that the dude does on his podcast. Like, he took the podcast, this dude up in Canada, and just created a cartoon based on the track. You know, like me and Mosier sitting there talking. It's actually kind of cool. Like, and it's happened a few times now. Versioning animators, because, you know, in order to animate, you need some sort of track. Take the podcasts and, like, create a visual to the story. And since, like, we usually sit there telling weird stories, you can create kind of visuals that, that match and so, I don't know, I, I've been really into that. And, like, at one point, Scott was like, you want to go try to sell it, you know, to some, some fucking TV channels guy? And, and he got into it, started talking to people about it. But they started noting it to death. You know, they were just like, can they, you know, we, one of them had Aquaman in it. And they were like, can Aquaman be in every episode? And I'm like, I don't own Aquaman. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I'll try, but I, can't, I don't, can't guarantee it. So right then and there, it was just like, all right, it's going the way of all shit. Everyone goes by the old model. They don't know how to fucking, they don't see where the puck's going. They just know where the puck is or where it's been and shit. So they're like, okay, well, if you do this, like South Park did, or if you make these characters regular like this and blah, 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 then you just lose interest. Then it becomes just generic fucking same bullshit that fits into some cookie cutter mold. You put it up there and people go, oh, this is more of the same bullshit. And then that cool idea you had just becomes something terrible that people fucking shit all over. So for me, I was like, ah, let's not, let's not even pursue it. Let's just stop pursuing it at this point. No pitching, why bother? Moja goes, well, ask yourself this. Do you want to make money off this or do you just want to see yourself in a cartoon once a month? And I was like, the latter, the latter. So he's like, well, let's just bring Stark in and pay him to make fucking cartoons for us and that way we own do whatever we want with him. I was like, yeah, shit. And then we didn't have to put Aquaman in everyone. So, <laughs> so, I, so for me, like, that's more interesting because half the work's done. Like, I don't have to put any thought into it. We've already recorded the track and then Stark, who's an equally fucking funny guy on his own, takes it and animates on top of it. So it was kind of like, uh, is that, keep going? Is that wrap no, up? No, no, I'm sorry. No. Uh, you're like, wrap it up. I was like, ah, oh, and then what happened? <laughs> so, uh, so for me, like doing a Mario's cartoon, uh, even a Clerks cartoon at this point, like I, first I'd be like, hey, can we do the Smod cartoon? Because that, it's a model that works for me because I don't have to do anything. Somebody else kind of gets to do something. And that's kind of what I like about second act of the career is, is it's kind of mirrors the second act of the internet first act of the internet is like hey man we're the internet here and they gave us a bunch of shit and the second act of the internet was way more interesting because the internet was like what do you want to do bring something to it and everybody started creating their own shit so right now I, I kind of I'm into that the notion of like kind of creating my own shit and, and doing those cartoons or having him do those cartoons where I don't have to do anything other than the initial recording is an awesome thing because it's a sweet little gift you forget about it's like Christmas once a, once a month like so at the end of the month 
you get an email from Ken Plume who runs the website and he sends you a link to this cartoon and, and you're just like, oh my God, they drew us and it's funny and it's, it's, that part is neat too. I'm telling you, man, there's a lot to enjoy in this fucking business if you let go of the almighty dollar. Like if you just sit there not chasing it, if you're trying to figure out how to monetize shit, you're never going to figure it out. Monetize shit, it happens while you're not looking. You know, it slowly becomes something like Smodcast. Just something we enjoyed doing and shit. One day, suddenly it started turning a profit without us even trying. And we felt guilty about it and shit. And then we were like, why? You know, why? Why feel guilty? Go for it. Because that'd be nice. If I could kind of live off just doing that, that'd be neat. Because then, you know, then I could do films if I want to. Not because, like, I would have to or something like that. You can make a choice. And here, it's always easier to make a film than it is out in the real world. Like, look, I love Red State to death, but every day I sit around and watch 120 people work. Like, put shit together just so we can film 12 seconds of some dude getting shot. And I'm like, God, that's so much effort and shit like that. I can just come here, tell a story about a dude getting shot, and that's it. And we move on. You know, in this, in this room, I'm a better director than Steven Spielberg, you know? So when I go out on a set, that's where you actually have to put some effort into it. Is there, is there any part of the, the kind of old media model that that you miss? I mean, I think of, you know, the characters in your early movies talking about Jaws and Butch and Sundance, which are all movies we grew up watching. Right. But now there are just fewer things that we all that we all watch. The collective experience. Right. Yeah, it's weird. It's going to be interesting to see what a pop culture reference looks like in 20 years, because we are kind of isolating, 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 and also entertainment is being made for smaller and smaller demographics. So you have laser pinpoint shows. The chick uh, Felicia Day who does that fucking show about gaming. The guild. Yes. Like, it's amazing that that show exists. And not that, like, how stupid, but there is a call for it, man. And she figured out, or her friends figured out, like, fuck everybody else. We, all we need is this much. We can make a show and be very happy every week, every month, whatever it is. I'm not, I know it exists. I never watch it. But, um, <laughs> but her audience does. And I don't know. It's, it's kind of an exciting time like that right now to watch people kind of take the media uh, the medium that we're in now and make it work for them in some strange way like I saw some article a couple months back where somebody was talking about the worst things that came out of the internet and one of them they said was now it's way too easy to get famous and there was a picture of me um, <laughs> so I, I don't know I don't know what to tell those cats but like you get out of it what you put into it and some people just go on the internet to spill bile and that's all they're ever going to get out of it I like to go on the internet and be productive get really high and get creative <laughs> and you know it's fun on the set of uh, Red State, yeah, I'm hearing a lot of... Uh, back when we spoke, you were talking, you know, uh, uh, a race with the devil. Yeah, yeah. Are you sticking to that? Is it Very much. Me? The movie is very much... To me, it plays like an exploitation film, to a large degree, from the 70s. In the 70s, my favorite kind of horror movie was a devil worship movie. And Red State is an angel worship movie. This basically takes all the tropes of a devil worship horror movie and just flips it into into the other side of the equation where the killers are not devil worshippers but you know god worshippers to some degree yeah yeah it's kind of it's interesting but I know a lot of people get like I've seen some people online I literally saw a conservative take off on me on twitter like saying the libs are so scared of us that Kevin Smith's making red state I'm like you don't even know what it's about yeah they have no fucking clue it's like it's not, they think it's a, pol- a polemic or a political film or something like that it's just and, and I used to want to correct them I used to be the guy who'd literally write that author and be like not for nothing, dude, but this is not accurate. I mean, I don't care about your opinion but about me, but what you wrote is not accurate. Now I'm like, why bother? Let them write whatever the fuck they're going to write because they're not going to correct it anyway. And they get your initial burst out that first hit. 
It's not like, hey, man, now everyone's going to come back and read the correction. I mean, I've been around long enough to understand. I learned that in old media. Stories this big, corrections this little, fucking buried somewhere deep in the back of the paper. What do I miss about old media? I don't know, man. I'm very sentimental about it because when clerks happened, man, it was all about, like, uh, we're going to go to the New York Times building at 2 a.m. on Thursday morning to pick up, uh, 2 a.m. Friday morning, late Thursday night, early Friday morning, to pick up the first review as it comes off the printing press. Like, that's, when I got into film, that's what you did. And now it's just like, well, I'll just fucking, here, here's the article, you know, and you don't even have to fucking leave your house to do it. So there's romantic aspects of like, oh, going to the New York Times to get that first review or holding that newspaper that, you know, had a review of of something you did in it or something. Um, but I don't know, shit changes. I used to love eight tracks when I was a kid. You know, you just gotta let shit go sometimes. Same emotion, same sentiment, different format now. So I, you know, there's not much about it that I'm kind of like, oh, it'll be sad. You know, I, I guess the New York Times announced that in five years they're going to stop publishing or something like that. Just last week, the paper they're going to be online, of course. But you know, and somebody was like, how sad? But I'm like, why? That's all these trees are going to fucking live. You don't need it anymore. Just because that was the one model that everybody's used to, doesn't mean you got to fucking stick with it, man. It's like, try something else. And you see what a wind's fucking blowing. Nobody wants, nobody holds paper anymore. You know, everything's kind of contained on a cell phone or a computer and iPad. So, I don't know. It's, that's slowly changing. I'm sorry. I'm talking about shit I have nothing to do with anymore. <laughs> now I'm really scraping the bottom of the going, I have nothing about old media. Sorry. We good? Or is there any more? This is your time. Ask whatever you want. I'll try one, one more. Okay. Maybe another one. Um, is there anything, now that you've been doing so much more live performance um, and, and having worked with great, amazing comedians like Carlin and, and Chris Rock, do you have a better insight into what they do or, in Carlin's case, did than no, you did before? Just, no, I, I mean, there any honestly, lessons? I used to kind of treat them differently than other people. Um, but now I'm just like, oh, they're just that's just what they do. They're just very good at that thing. The older you get, you figure it out. It's not like this great, amazing talent. It's just you, some people are very good at very specific things. And what they do, they're very good at getting up there and being funny in front of people. Um, beyond that, you know, it's varying degrees of success and unsuccess. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I've, I've, I wish I could say, like, I've hung around enough funny people now that I know how the, the mind of the comedian works. Like, I, I, don't, I saw funny people. That worked for me. I was like, that seems accurate. Um, <laughs> But no, I, I don't think I have any more insight. What I do, though, is just be around funny people, man. Can't help but rub off. Because if you want to... It's like being thrown in the pool. If you want to swim, you start fucking kicking your feet and shit. Because when you're around funny people, who just like, tear it off. You know, without even thinking. Will Ferrell, dude. On the Jay and Son Bob Shake Back was insane. Just standing next to a guy who breathed funny. You'd be sitting there and just like... <sighs> and you're like, that's funny, Will. Even that's funny. So being around funny people helps. That's why the podcast. That's why I like do one with Moe's because Moe's is a certain type of personality, funny personality. Muse, completely different from Moe's and get to exercise a different muscle there. Uh, when I do it with Malcolm on Blowhard, same thing. That's me going to gay, doing gay comedy and shit. Um, uh, the Hollywood Babylon, which we're holding up probably, is just doing the, you know, the, the fucking... Enter- it's like it's like a intentionally funny version of entertainment tonight, <laughs> as we like to say. So um, it, because of that, you get to kind of w- work out those muscles, if you will, um, the theoretical muscles, obviously, um, uh, with a bunch of people who are funny, cut your teeth, and it makes you funnier because of it. 
So I think hanging out with those guys just kind of it teaches you to be, or at least try to be funnier. Did you think it was uh, funny that, that uh, people were giving you crap on the internet about uh, making Batman shit himself? <laughs> that was weird. Was, you never know where it's going to come from, man. It's, that's the thing. It's like you spend your whole life going like, what are they going to get me for next? You know? And, and it, things had calmed down and kind of gone very quiet and back to normal. And that issue I'd been looking forward to, me and Walt, for a year. Just couldn't wait till that last turn of the page and people saw what we'd been brewing for a fucking year. And sure enough, man, for a minute, they tried to take the discourse into a direction that I had no interest in, which was so geeky. Even though they had lost Batman in the time stream and he was fighting fucking pirates and cavemen, <laughs> the fact that I was like, hey, when this explosive went off, uh, he had a, a bladder spasm. That was it. All I said, bladder spasm. They were like, he made Batman piss himself. He is fucking Satan. And, I, and it was, too, and it really did it threaten to get big, but it was two fucking websites fueling one another. It was almost like, that's right, Dick. I'm saying the same thing. Literally talking to one another. And people kept sending me the links, and I was going like, it's the same two fucking stories. And then I realized I got nothing to worry about. And then I started seeing the real reaction to the book. So it threatened to kind of jump in there and derail something that like I knew was going to be fun and cool. Mercifully, it fucking, those two dudes just, I guess got laid and stopped talking about it. Maybe, I don't know, but they were so mad about that. Like, how dare he? He's ruined continuity forever and Batman shit. Batman has perfect bladder control. Yeah, exactly. Like, Batman would never pee. He's been holding it for 30 years. Committed to a life against pissing and crime. Uh, yeah, that was strange. I, I didn't expect that one at all. Mercifully, it went away pretty quickly. But in a moment like that, I'm just like, are you fucking serious? Like, I just want to sit down with those dudes and be like, dude, let me introduce you to pussy. Because you won't care about fucking Batman pees himself or not, you know? Get out of the goddamn room. And I don't mean like, hey, I know you live in your parents' basement. I, I live in my parents' basement, virtually speaking. It's not that. It's the fucking, like, are you serious? All the things that they've done to Batman over the years... A few drops of fucking urine. Not even he pissed himself. A bladder spasm. And the dude, one of those dudes is literally like, this is the worst comic book page in the history of comic books. And I'm like, come on, man. Sonic Disruptors was really bad. <laughs> That's a very geek joke. Yes, yeah, sir. You mentioned uh, like you'd like to maybe work with Will Ferrell. Is there any other actor I worked or actress? With Will oh yeah. Um, <laughs> is there any like actors or actresses that that you would love to work with that you haven't worked with yet? I mean, I'm, I, I got John Goodman and Michael Parks right now. Those right. are two dudes that I've always wanted to work with. Michael Parks. I mean, I wrote Red State just to work with Michael Parks. I saw From Dust Till Dawn in '95, and he's in the first ten minutes. And I was fucking transfixed. I was like, who the fuck is this man? I was like, this guy's amazing. And they killed him. And then I was like, god damn it, that was the best part of the flick. So every time they used him, I was just like, this guy's the bomb. And just because he finds a way to deliver dialogue in a way that you wouldn't predict. And at least in my line of work, that's cool. Because normally you can predict how every line's going to fall out of somebody's mouth within a, a varying degrees. But him, no fucking way. It was just like he chooses. And even I was writing for him, and I'm writing for his voice. And he still found a way to unparks it in a way where it was like, wow. So I, 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 at that moment, I was like, I want to work with that movie. I want to see that dude in a whole movie one day, not just fucking 10 minutes. So when I started writing Red State, it was, I was thinking about Parks the whole time because I was just like, I would just like to watch this dude for more than these little quick hits that we were seeing him in Quentin and Roberts' movie. And he has embraced the opportunity like you fucking read about, man. He, he's given a bravura performance. It rocks. It's 
as a guy who makes the movie, naturally I like it. But as a guy who just likes the movie, it's um, it's awesome to watch. It's spellbinding. He's it's like I'm, I'm it's 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 good. These people are really gonna. It'll work after this forever for, until the end of time because he just kind of knocks it out the park, man. Like really in a great great way. Uh, unpredictable, but but very familiar performance. Now that you're shooting without a studio, do you find that you've changed anything in the script or directing or? No, like I mean that? no. It wasn't like yeah, no studio, man. So let's bring in the hookers. There, there was uh, nothing really to change. The budget change would have hurt us more than studio or no studio. I mean, like I said before, probably the biggest blessing of not being involved with somebody else is that we got to cast whoever we wanted. Studio wouldn't have let that happen. I would not have the cast. I, I mean, I wouldn't even have Michael Parks. Like, nobody would let me cast Michael Parks as a studio. They'd be like, oh, come on, go for Tony Hopkins or something like that. Somebody expensive. But it's like, how about we go for the right person for the fucking job? Wouldn't that be unique? And that's what we used to do back in the day. You know, just grab people who were, like, really cool actors. Um, and mercifully, for years and years, I got to work with both those people over and over again. That's why I kept working with the same people. Because I'm like, I like them, know them, trust them, I know what I can get from them. I know how to write for them, you know? It's just, it was the right relationship. But now I'm kind of in this world where I'm like, I like to just watch actors go. Like, it, with Red State, it's just stand there, let them fucking go, and just get out of the way. And every once in a while, just be like, can you try this? Or maybe can you hit this? It'd be nice if we can line you up in this shot. But very, very little um, interruption or kind of involvement, just kind of watching from more of a from a fan's perspective you know for a while there I was just thinking like everything about, as a filmmaker you know and trying to outthink the audience and trying to outthink critics or try to outthink marketing or fucking you know all those ridiculous things I have one job and I should really concentrate on that just make the movie as good as I can let all that other shit be on somebody else's shoulders if I was going to go that traditional route of like studio somebody buying a movie or something but like I said that's kind of that's a broken model. So it'd be nice to do something different, especially when uh, the movie we're making, financial risk is not huge. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think the fact that it's under five million bucks frees us up to be like, hey man, let's get dirty and see, let's see if we can figure out a different way to do this. Because there's not that much to recoup. I mean, to be honest with you, we sell our fucking DVD rights and we're already fucking in the black. So it's when you're working from that position, you're, you know, it's kind of like, and, and you're as old as I am, and you smoke as much weed as I do, and you went through all the shit I went through last year. Then you get to the place where you're like, let's try something. Let's be mischievous. Let's fucking, let's see if we can create a new model for something. So I don't know. we got a few months to figure that out. If not, it'll just take the movie up to Sundance and do what people normally do. But it just seems so boring to me. Going to Sundance seems fun, but the whole, let's sell the movie. Why? Let's figure out something else. How much longer do you have on that shooting? Uh, we got one more full week and then two days after that, seven shooting days left. It's been a very, very quick shoot. It's a very short movie, too. The script is only like 80 pages. So I think the movie is going to be 80, 85 minutes long. But it's a fucking potent 80, 85 minutes. So far. And we're about 50, well, now we're 60, 62 minutes into the flick. Everything I cut while we shoot, so... We're, we can watch it. That's what we do. Every night I fucking come home, cut the movie, and wake up, cut again, then bring it in. And before we start shooting the movie, we'll just sit around and watch the movie that we made a day ago. Doesn't awesome way to work. I mean, it seems like it, you're like, I, I, Difficult how? Yeah, does it, does that kind of they, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that? Does it? It's, it's beautiful cutting while you shoot because I shoot something on a Monday, I'm cutting it by Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. 
So all those choices and all those things I remembered about fine points about performance, I just sit there and go, I don't really direct. That's the thing I've realized almost 20 years in. I'm not a standard director or a traditional director. I'm just an editor who happens to direct his own movies. So when I sit on a set, I don't walk up to people and be like, you got to find a deep insight. you got to moat. This reminds you of the time your uncle touched you. Like, I don't do shit like that. (laughs) I just kind of go like, "Um, there's the mark, man. Let's see what happens. And, And then I'll go in and be like, say this instead. Say this line. Throw this in or something like that. But really, when I sit there and watch the scene, I'm just going, okay, there's my one beat, there's that line, there's that line, don't have that line yet, we got to go again, got that line, got that line, go the next take, and then basically I'm just looking for those two moments I didn't have before. Sometimes you get to gild the lily, whereas like the actor gets a second run at it, and they do some great stuff with the material you already felt you had. Like, we're shooting this scene this week with Carrie, this chick, Carrie Bechet, who's fucking acted her ass off, dropped a clinic on performance. So... Two takes I did with her. And since we're four million bucks, I don't roll. Like, basically, I get what I want, we move the fuck on. <laughs> so we got, first half of her take was very, very strong. And then we did another take, and the second half of that take was very, very strong. So I was like, beautiful. Between those two two, two takes, I'm completely covered. She's, she's golden. We can move on. And so I was like, check it. And then I was like, unless you want to go again, Carrie? And she's looking at me like, uh, like she didn't want to say yes, but she wants to say yes. And I was like, this is, it. this is your moment, man. You'll never get to do this monologue again. So if you want to do it, say it. And she's like, can we do one more? I was like, yeah. She went one more and dropped a fucking science clinic, man. Just fucking from beginning to end, it was a flawless fucking take. And I was like, wow, we thank God we went more, one more take. But even if we hadn't, I was covered with my other shit. So even afterwards, I was like, that was a really beautiful piece of work. And fucking, I only needed this much, but you gave me this much and shit. But I keep telling all the kids, because, you know, some of them are younger and then some of the actors are older, too. But just reminding them. I am not here to fucking work you like a puppet. I'm literally, you make your own choices. You're the author of your own performance. You got to live with it forever. If it falls far from what I'm trying to accomplish on the page, I'll let you know. But up until then, I've hired you because I believe in you. You're the person I wrote for. You're the person I believe to do this role. So I'm going to let you fucking do that. And that's what I do. I just kind of hang back and edit the movie on set. On your uh, IMDb page, there's a red state, uh, the the Zivon flick, and then there's something listed as untitled. I don't know what that is. Okay. That's not mine. <laughs> yeah, it's untitled Kevin Smith. I mean, I saw shit, I, you know, it's, it's so specious out there anymore. There's a story that ran, it was a piece about, like, a one-line description of Red State. And in some, it was like, this is the official logline of the movie. And it, no, it didn't come from us, it didn't come from fucking anywhere. I don't know who came up with it. But I put in the information. I was just like, that's, that's not ours, and it's not close and blah 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 people still use it all the time whenever they're at a red state like red state is about and they use that whole fucking sentence so that's like i can't i can't win fucking let them write whatever they're gonna write i guess good well what if you had to like you know put red state into a sentence or into a short like what is red state about like what is state is the next film (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll see in January it's a cool thing it's a, it's a horror movie people keep going no it's not but yeah it is it's very much a horror movie it's neat it looks great Dave Klein gonna work forever after this movie this is a real you know what this movie is this is Dave Klein's fucking uh, Thunderdome like after years and yet Dave Klein unfortunately is saddled with being the guy that shot one of the worst looking best known films of all time Clerks looks like it was shot by two chimps and Dave was one of those chimps. But he's an accomplished DP who, over the years, has like, turned in incredible, incredible work, but will always be fighting the monkey of that albatross around his, around his neck. This movie, though, oh, 
After this, he works for. After this, he gets calls from like way better directors than me. Right now, he's in that Kevin Smith realm. After Red State <laughs> comes out, he'll be getting calls from like the Finchers of this world. He's shooting an amazing looking movie for four million bucks. It's killer. It's so inspiring. I can't tell you because I was at the end of it. I was like, fuck all this noise. It's just no fun anymore. I'd much rather sit on stage and talk or just sit there and podcast. But doing Red State, doing the way we've done it. And everybody pulling together the way they have has just been fucking nothing short of inspiring. It makes me go like, all right, yeah, I do want to make a, mo- a movie. I want to make another movie. It makes me want to make Hit Somebody even fucking cheaper. You know, and I think we can, because we can pull this movie off for four. It's like, we can probably pull off Hit Somebody for like 12 to 15, even though it's a period piece. It takes place from the 50s to the 70s. But we're going to shoot it in Detroit, and Detroit kind of stopped building right around then, so it'll look perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you rank uh, Red State among all your films? <laughs> I don't do that. People, if you can't create, you rank. <laughs> you know, I, I don't do that ranking. It's just the latest movie. And it's not even done yet. I mean, in terms of like this version of it, this early cut, pretty, pretty cool. But we'll see. Only time will tell. And also, it's like it doesn't matter. Like one of my favorite, my favorite movie of ours that we ever did is Clerks 2. Nobody agrees with me. <laughs> Um, and they're like, yeah, I bless you. They're like, oh, it's Chasing Amy. I'm like, look, I like Chasing Amy too, but for me, as a Kevin Smith fan, I, Clerks 2 is my favorite of the bunch. And people don't agree, so you know, it doesn't really matter where I think Red State's going to rank. I guess we'll figure out what the audience thinks about it. Be there in January. That's going to be a fun thing. But more importantly, be there for fucking this shit next week. This is very, very cool. It's very sweet of Epics to, to let me do it. And, and, and my life and career, more importantly, has been a series of wish fulfillment and kind of like, it would be nice to do this. It'd be nice to do this. Like, I wonder what it would be like to be George Carlin. So I get up on stage and tell jokes and feel what it's like to be George Carlin. What would it be like to be Howard Stern? I get in front of a mic and talk for a while and know what that feels like. I wonder, like, what it feel like to be Richard Linklater, you know, and I make clerks. And so you get moments like that through, throughout the, the entire career and epics takes me right back to my childhood by giving me a fucking stand up special the way that, you know, I first was introduced visually to George Carlin. Like watching him on HBO um, for Carlin and Carnegie and shit. So it's nice. It's, this is one of those things where I never knew I wanted it, and it's not something I would have consciously wished for, but it happened, and you're like, this is kind of badass. So um, I don't know. So much so that like I looked at like Zach and Joey shot do do documentary stuff on our disc. Like they did the the um, Snowball Effect doc, and they did the Chasing Amy doc on the Blu-ray, and the Clerks Two doc. Really good guys. Really talented shooters. Um, and they gave me the thing to watch after they shot it because they had to cut it down. It was like almost four hours, and we had to cut it down to like two hours or something like that. So I was watching the cut, and I was looking at it going, my God, I look like a fucking blimp in those bright colors. Like I was just looking, I was, couldn't get past how fat I looked. Then I didn't care. I was just like, oh, my God, it doesn't matter. Somebody gave you money to go shoot a fucking TV special. It's going to air on TV, and then they'll put it on the net. Like, we give a shit what you look like. It's what you're saying. And it's pretty funny. Like, I was happy with that show. It was a really good show. Um, the conceit of the show, which I like, which you don't really get from that clip, is only one person asks a question. And, and the entire two hours is on the back of that one question. <laughs> yeah. That was the one thing going into the show. I was like, well, what can I do differently for me? Because after a certain point, you do it and do it and do it. It's like, how many different ways can you skin a cat? You're just a guy standing there talking. But I was just like, it's my 40th birthday. How can I do it different? How can I do it in a way that I would enjoy it? And I always wanted to do two, three hours on one question just to see if I can tie every story together. And so dude stood up and mercifully asked the right question or close. It was like 10 questions he could have asked, which would have been perfect. And he asked one of them and I was just like, oh, 
<laughs> so the whole time I just kind of go off the one guy. And at the end, I was just like, so to answer your question. <laughs> it's good, but I, yeah, I can't thank them enough. They came out of nowhere. And I'm, I'm in good company. Janine Garofalo's out of special there. Yeah. Louis Black, other people, other really, really cool people, Louis C.K. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's a neat thing. Very neat thing. I keep saying that, but I, honestly, that's how I feel. Or anything. Are we going to get a DVD of this? Eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, they get to air it for a while, and then we can put it out later on. And then we're trying, we were actually talking about this week, trying to figure out what to do. Like, do you even bother putting it on DVD anymore? Or do you just go straight to Blu-ray and digital download? You know what I'm saying? And then I was just like, well, back in the day, like, DVD is kind of right now where VHS was as it was trending downward. So maybe... If it's cheaper, you know, maybe you could put out a fucking DVD for five bucks, you know, because probably uh, duping at this point for D standard DVD must be like next to nothing. So uh, maybe we can do that. Maybe put it out as a very cheap version of it. Uh, and that's kind of like the what to do now in the present, man, is just figure out interesting ways to find a kind of get the same thing out there. You know, at the end of the day, Red State could be this, that, the other thing's just a movie. You know, I know how to, I've had to release movies before. But it's about making it interesting for yourself. Just like with the special, where I was like, let me see if I can do this all in one question. Releasing the movie, too, is like, let me see if I can do this in a way with blah, 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 where it's interesting for me and the people involved. Rather than just play, playing the same old fucking stupid tune of like, here's a bunch of money. Can you please put an ad in the newspaper for us? The newspaper that nobody reads anymore. Can you please put a TV spot? I mean, look, am I against TV spots? No, but I'd do it fucking unlike how they've always done it, where they just carpet bomb and spend money everywhere. I just buy, like, what's the hottest show? All right, fucking American Idol. I'll put one spot on American Idol right before we open. Done and done. And that's where I'd, my media spend would be there, and that's it. So, um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll figure out something interesting to do from Sundance on. But uh, in the meantime, check this out next week. It's good. I'm very, very happy with it. I didn't want to do... Once again, man, there was a period where some fuckers on the internet beat this kind of shit out of me, too. I enjoyed doing these things, the evening with things, and we'd done three of them. And somebody online was just like, he's so arrogant. He has three DVDs of himself talking. And I was literally like, fuck you. I'm not going to do it anymore then. And five years later, I was like, why am I revenging somebody who doesn't really care? I was like, I'm kind of knocking myself out of doing something cool. And then Epic's called. And I was like, I, would, I have a bunch of stories I would love to put on wax. Because everything I hadn't put down or recorded since the last one had built up. So I knew I had like two, three hours. So I was like, yes, please. I'd love to do it. So they've been really, really nice to me and really cool about doing it. And I don't know. It, it's not. It's it's. Once again, I keep saying it's me. Running out of words. Sorry. I still have a show to do after. This. Yes. Um, you were talking about being inspired to be funny by hanging out with funny people. Do you yeah. Have any favorite like working comedians. Everybody on the Spotcast Network right now. Yeah. There's not many people that I'm listening to beyond that, uh, and not because I'm like nobody else is funny. It's just there's not enough time in the day. And I can't even listen to my own shit we're generating on my own site. You know, I've fallen behind on telling Steve Dave I'm current with Pucknuts. Those are shows that I'm not involved with. So I'd rather give it up for my friends than hear something else. If there's something really great out there, somebody's going to fucking call my attention to it, lickety split. So, um, but for now, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to keep up with our, our own volume of work. We good, folks? Thank you for coming out on a Saturday night, no less. Thanks a lot, guys.